Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 31st edition of the Work Comp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal affirmed the four-year statute of limitations for an applicant to file a malpractice case against his attorneys. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Nielsen versus Adam Stewart. Dane Nielsen, as his own attorney, filed a malpractice complaint in 2016 against the Northern and Central California law firm of Murad, Clark, and Stewart. Nielsen alleged that he retained the law firm in 2003 to represent him in a workers' comp claim and a 132A discrimination claim against the Pine Mountain Lake Association, or PMLA. Unbeknownst to Nielsen, Clark was a member of the Pine Mountain Lake Association. The gist of his claim was that the attorneys failed to exercise reasonable care and skill in performing legal services, resulting in a dismissal of the 132A case. The complaint further alleged that Clark had undisclosed conflict of interest in violation of Rule 3-300 of the California Rules of Professional Conduct. The law firm demurred on the basis that the complaint failed to state a cause of action and that it was barred by the four-year statute of limitations provided by the Code of Civil Procedure. In support of the demur, the defendants requested judicial notice of various documents filed in the work comp case. Nielsen did not file an opposition to the demur. The trial court sustained the demur without leave to amend and Nielsen appealed. The Court of Appeal sustained the dismissal in the unpublished case. The Court of Appeal found that all of Nielsen's claims were barred by the four-year statute of limitations because none of his claims fell within the fraud exception and no other tolling provision applied. The law firm ceased representing Nielsen by June of 2006, so all the alleged wrongful acts or omissions occurred more than four years before the complaint was filed in 2016. The code provides for tolling of the statute of limitations in four instances, and none of these tolling provisions applied here. And now our crime report. Dr. Carmen Anthony Pugliafito was a towering figure in the USC's lecture halls, labs, and executive offices. He was the dean of the Keck School of Medicine and a renowned eye surgeon whose skill in the operating room was matched by a gift for attracting money and talent to the university. But there was another side to the Harvard-educated physician uncovered by a Los Angeles Times investigation. During his tenure as the medical school dean, Pula Fito kept company with a circle of criminals and drug users who said he used methamphetamine and other drugs with them. 66-year-old Pula Fito and these much younger acquaintances captured their exploits in photos and videos. They were shot in 2015 and 2016 and show Pula Fieto and the others partying in hotel rooms, cars, apartments, and the dean's offices at USC. In one veto, a video, a tuxedo-clad Pula Fito displays an orange pill on his tongue and says he wanted to take an ecstasy before he attended a ball. He then swallowed the pill. 
In another video, Polifito uses a butane torch to heat a large glass pipe outfitted for methamphetamine use. He inhales and then unleashes a thick plume of white smoke. Seated next to him on a sofa, a young woman smokes heroin from a piece of heated foil. As dean of the medical school, Polifito oversaw hundreds of medical students, thousands of professors and clinicians, and research grants totaling more than $200 million. He was a key fundraiser for USC, bringing in more than $1 billion in donations. It was a tip about an incident in a Pasadena hotel that led journalists to discover Polifito's other life. Polavito resigned his $1.1 million a year post in March 2016, three weeks after it became public that a 21-year-old woman allegedly overdosed in the former dean's hotel room. She was Sarah Warren, allegedly the woman who overdosed with him in the Pasadena hotel room. She told journalists that she met Polifito in early 2015 while working as a prostitute and that they were constant companions for more than a year and a half. Initially, a Pasadena Police Department spokesman said there was no police report of the event apart from a call for service log. After the Los Angeles Times, journalists repeated requests for additional information the police department acknowledged that an officer at the scene should have prepared a report. The officer was then ordered to do so in June of 2016, three months after the incident, and Palafito was identified as a witness to the overdose and a friend of the victim in the after-the-fact report. The rest of the document is heavily redacted, but the Pasadena Police Department also released an evidence report that shows officers seized a little, little over a gram of methamphetamine from that hotel room. Under state law, illegal possession of methamphetamine could be charged as a misdemeanor. The woman involved, Sarah Warren, said the Pasadena Police Department have never interviewed her. After Poliafieto stepped down as the medical school dean, USC kept him on the medical school faculty, and he continued to accept new patients at a campus eye clinic. USC's medicine department climbed from number 38 to number 31 on U.S. News and World Report rankings during Polifito's tenure as dean. The doctor had secured millions of dollars in donations for the school. USC fundraising galas can be glittered affairs with movie stars and billionaire donors rubbing elbows in Beverly Hills ballrooms. Palafito glided confidently through these events, posing for photos with Gwen Paltrow and Pierce Bronson and chatting up tech mogul Larry Ellison and mega developer Rick Caruso. California Medical Board records show his license is current and that no disciplinary charges are pending at this time against him. Methamphetamine is classified as a Schedule II, blood, Schedule II drug under the Controlled Substance Act. A case can be made for discipline of a physician who abuses a controlled substance. Despite an abundance of physical and other evidence available publicly for more than a year, the medical board has not taken any action that can be discovered on its website. 
The evidence against Dr. Polifito seems to be hidden in plain sight. Or maybe there are two standards of justice, one that looks the other way when universities find prolific fundraisers. The Los Angeles County District Attorney announced that a Redondo Beach woman accused of participating in a $150 million workers' compensation insurance fraud scheme has now pleaded guilty. 40-year-old Marisa Nelson pleaded to one felony count of conspiracy to commit insurance fraud and admitted a special allegation of taking property of a value exceeding $3.2 million. The sentencing hearing for Nelson is scheduled for next July 2018. This will provide prosecutors one year to see how cooperative she might be with the continuing investigation before they recommend a sentence or argue what sentence might be appropriate for her. Nelson is one of more than a dozen people associated with frontline medical associates who were accused in 2015 of taking part in a $150 million scam. The scam allegedly involved unnecessary surgeries by non-surgeons, doling out kickbacks for illegal patient referrals and fraudulently billing insurance companies. But the Los Angeles Times reports that over the 18 months that followed, a judge dismissed most of the 132 counts laid out in the two indictments. The most serious charges for aggravated mayhem carrying a potential life sentence were dropped for a lack of evidence. Recently, prosecutors are taking a second stab at the case after acknowledging flaws in how they presented it to a grand jury. At their request, a Superior Court judge threw out pending charges in the two indictments against 13 defendants, except for two suspects who are fugitives. And prosecutors immediately brought new charges against a dozen people, filing three separate criminal complaints, listing nearly 200 counts including aggravated mayhem, money laundering, insurance fraud, and unlawful patient referrals. Prosecutors allege that Dr. Minur Yueda, the orthopedic surgeon patients believed would conduct procedures, instead let a physician's assistant perform them. Yueda, the accused ringleader, who prosecutors initially said had been captured in Germany, remains at large. They believe he is living in Lebanon. Marissa Nelson was Minuri Wade's personal assistant and the first of the defendants to plead guilty. She's also the wife of co-defendant Peter Nelson, a physician assistant who never attended medical school and who allegedly performed invasive and sometimes unnecessary surgeries. Her guilty plea may be a sign that prosecutors are now having some successful results, and her possible cooperation as a witness may prove to be the break they need to go forward with the remaining defendants. The Tax Recovery and Criminal Enforcement Task Force, also known as TRACE, ended a two-year investigation with a Southern California clothing retailer pleading guilty to multiple charges. The charges include four counts of sales tax evasion, filing false state tax returns, failure to pay taxes on employee wages, and workers' compensation fraud. 59-year-old Yong Huan Kim of Los Angeles County entered the plea in the Superior Court Norwalk branch. Kim owned and operated more than 50 retail clothing stores in Los Angeles, Orange, San Diego, and Ventura counties. 
The Trace investigation revealed Kim failed to report more than $29 million in sales, more than $39 million in taxable income, more than $8 million in wages, and evaded payment of $5.7 million in sales income and payroll tax. Kim also failed to report more than $7 million in wages to his insurance carriers and evaded payment of more than $350,000 in workers' comp insurance premium. Kim's plea agreement states that he must pay more than $7.6 million in restitution for tax and associated costs and serve two years in county jail. If he fails to pay full restitution within six months, he will receive a 17-year prison sentence. 63-year-old Tim Fallon of Long Beach has been arraigned on multiple felony charges, including theft by embezzlement and money laundering. Fallon's daughter, 28-year-old Christina Fallon, also of Long Beach, is facing the same felony charges. Tom Fallon and his daughter allegedly embezzled over $270,000 from injured workers who trusted him to invest Medicare set-aside funds from workplace accidents with his company, Fortis Financial Insurance Services. Fallon asked two victims who received a settlement of over $270,000 from a work-related traffic collision to deposit their accident settlement funds with him in what's known as a workers' compensation set-aside arrangement. The victims received an interest payment check from Fallon that bounced for non-sufficient funds, which raised their suspicions that something was wrong. The victims filed a request for assistance with the California Department of Insurance Consumer Services Division, which led to a criminal investigation. That uncovered the alleged crime and revealed Fallon embezzled from the victims and used the funds for his personal expenses and business ventures, including Big Daddy's Cigar Lounge in Naples, which he owned. If convicted of all the charges the defendants face, a maximum sentence of more than 16 years in state prison. A former Costa Mesa Police Department officer was sentenced to six months in county jail for committing insurance fraud by presenting a false insurance claim and making false material statements related to the claim. 32-year-old Ryan Patrick Natividad of Corona, who was employed as a police officer and reported a work-related injury in 2014. He falsely claimed that earlier in the day he struck his hand against a brick wall near the city jail while transporting an arrestee for booking. Natividad claimed that the arrestee stumbled into the wall, prompting him to use his hand to prevent the arrestee from striking the wall. He listed a jail employee as witness to the incident in his injury paperwork. But the employee reviewed the jail surveillance camera footage and determined that the incident the defendant reported never occurred. The city of Costa Mesa Insurance Company, AdminSure, and a private investigation firm hired by AdminSure investigated Natividad's claim and reported the fraud to the Orange County District Attorney. A jury trial in February resulted in a guilty verdict of one felony count each, of insurance fraud and making a fraudulent statement. He has now been sentenced to six months in county jail, three years of formal probation, and ordered to pay restitution. 
And now in regulatory news, Calosha and Chevron have reached a settlement agreement for a comprehensive plan that will improve safety at the Chevron Richmond refinery and for surrounding communities. The agreement resolves Chevron's appeal of citations issued by Cal OSHA in 2013 following an investigation into a fire that occurred at the Richmond refinery in 2012. Cal OSHA cited Chevron for 17 workplace safety and health violations, including six serious and nine willful in nature. In August 2012, flames were seen issuing from at least two of the refinery's towers. Contra Costa Health Services responded by notifying residents to shelter in place. BART shut down local service and initial reports estimated that 11,000 people sought treatment at area hospitals and later reports placed that number at above 15,000 people. Six employees that were present at the scene of the fire suffered injury. Calosha immediately launched an investigation throughout the refinery and found that Chevron did not follow the recommendation of its own inspectors and metallurgical scientists to replace the corroded pipe that ultimately ruptured and caused the fire. They also found that Chevron did not follow its own refinery shutdown procedures when the leak was identified. There were also violations in Chevron's overall implementation of its own Process Safety Management, or PSM, procedures required by Cal OSHA of all refineries. Chevron appealed the Cal OSHA citations. And in 2013, the company pleaded no contest to six criminal charges in connection with the fire and agreed to pay $2 million in fines and restitutions. The charges were filed by the California Attorney General's Office and the Contra Costa District Attorney's Office. The negotiated Cal OSHA settlement requires Chevron to institute extraordinary measures to ensure process safety at the Richmond Refinery. It must also pay the citation penalties of over $780,000 originally proposed by Cal OSHA in January, plus an additional $230,000. Cal OSHA agrees to withdraw nine of the 17 violations that were cited. The withdrawn citations include four willful serious category violations, three serious and two general in nature, and it will amend five of the remaining eight violations that were cited. According to a report presented at recent City of Santa Monica City Council meetings, workers' compensation costs continue to grow at an accelerated pace for the city. In the current fiscal year alone, the city's contributions to the workers' comp self-insurance fund is expected to increase by 50%, and contributions are projected to rise by 10% annually after that if current claim trends continue. In response, the finance director convened a workers' compensation working group for the purpose of developing ways to curb the city's growing workers' comp costs. The working group proposed a variety of pilot cost control projects that have been put in place across the city. Examples include the Wow That's Fast program, which provides comprehensive case management services to injured, sworn personnel and post-job offer functional capacity testing. This program quickly determines prospective employees are capable of safely carrying out essential job functions of a new job prior to placement. 
The most recent idea to emerge from the working group involves a big blue bus risk management division proposal to contract with a TPA to manage the BBB's workers' compensation claims. The idea was intriguing to the working group due to the many advantages a reputable and over and established TPA could have over an in-house program. The idea resulted in the development of a three-year pilot program to determine which model is more cost-effective. The finance department and the big blue bus asked the council for authorization to engage in the pilot program where the BBB will serve as the test group. As proposed, administration of BBB's workers' compensation claims will transfer from in-house staff in the risk management division to a private claims administrator. Pilot program performance will be evaluated and monitored throughout the pilot period. The city staff solicited formal proposals from TPAs for workers' comp and claims administration services, resulting in a recommendation that the city enter into an agreement with InterCare Holdings Insurance Services. And in medical news, a new report released by Coventry Workers' Comp Services says that generic drug prescribing and use continues an upward trend in workers' comp claims. The report examined data from managed and unmanaged prescriptions in injured workers' populations between 2015 and 2016. Managed prescriptions such as retail, mail order, and extended network prescriptions represented nearly a quarter of total prescriptions and nearly 78% of total costs in 2016. Generic utilization in this group demonstrated a slight uptick of 0.2%. This was likely due to the generic for Voltren Gel, a topical NSAID, which was a key contributor to increased genetic generic utilization. Opioids continue to be the most highly prescribed drug class for managed populations, as well as the costliest, but opioids showed a decline in prescribing in 2016. Opioid cost drops 1.4% from 2014. Non-opioid drug classes continue to increase as opioid utilization decreases. Compound medications remained among the top 10 in drug costs, but declined in utilization overall. The adoption of generic NSAIDs as first-line treatment for less severe injuries helped drive down brand-name utilization in 2016. However, a surge in the use of dermatological topical medications likely contributed to a 5% increase in generic drug costs. Since the data showed a strong efficiency in managed populations, the researchers noted that directing more prescriptions in-network for access to greater controls, such as formulary enforcement, could help improve efficiency. But now generic drug makers are turning to mergers and acquisitions to shield themselves against a concerted effort by U.S. regulators to crack down on steep drug prices. Three of them, Impax Laboratories, Perigo Company, and Alvogen, have been talking about options for their generic businesses, ranging from acquisitions to increased scale to an outright sale of the generic units. Meanwhile, Malincrod, one of the
largest producers of the generic opioid painkiller oxycodone has been exploring a sale of its specialty generics unit. Generic drugs, which are less expensive versions of brand name pharmaceuticals, have become a key front in efforts to cut the costs of prescription drugs. Consumers spend more than twice as much on drugs per capita in the United States compared with other industrialized countries, according to a 2016 report by the Journal of the American Medical Association. To bring prices down, the FDA has committed to eliminating the backlog of drug applications awaiting its approval. This could mean nearly 4,000 new medicines will come onto the market over the next several years. Even before a potential flood of new products, small and mid-sized drug makers were under pressure as consolidation among generic drug distributors has made it less profitable for them to sell their drugs. A merger or a sale to a rival could alleviate some of the pressure through cost-cutting, reduced competition, and new markets and products. It could also help companies negotiate better terms with drug distributors such as Cardinal Health, McKesson Corporation, and Amerisource, Virgin, which control about 90% of all revenue from drug distribution. Myland and Teva, the two largest players in the generics market by revenue, helped slow the pace of decline in their generic business last year by way of their acquisitions. One might expect the anticipated drug competition from nearly 4,000 new drugs will have a beneficial impact on the cost of workers' compensation claims. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.